Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello everyone and welcome to LawPod and to the next episode in our Transitional Justice series. I am Lauren Dempster and today I am delighted to be joined by Dr Julia Weibach, Ulrike Luhe and Dr Benjamin Thorne to discuss the role of archives in transitional justice. So to begin with, could you briefly each introduce yourselves? Uh, Julia, do you want to go first? Thank you very much, Lauren, for the introduction and the invitation today. Um, I'm a departmental lecturer at the African Studies Centre at the University of Oxford, where I've been for a couple of years now. And before that, I was at the law faculty in Oxford. And my research is particularly concerned with post-genocide, Rwanda, memory and archives. And mostly I work with survivors of the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi. Hello also from me and thanks for the invitation. I'm Ulrike Lühe. I'm working with the Dealing with the Past program at Swiss Peace, uh, which is an affiliated institute of the University of Basel. I'm both a researcher and a practitioner, as we like to call it. Um, so I've just wrapped up my PhD research on the politics of knowledge production and expertise in transitional justice, focusing on the development of the African Union transitional justice policy. And I'm um, doing research on corporate symbolic reparations and corporate archives as well. Great. Thank you. And Benjamin? Hi, I'm Benjamin Form. And also just to add my thanks to Lauren for the invitation. So I recently completed my PhD in law studies at the University of Sussex. And my main research themes for me are socio-legal studies, transitional justice, and critical theory. And a current central focus is memory, transitional justice, and legal atrocity archives. And a bit more generally, I'm interested in questions around visual representations of crime, law, and justice, and the coexistence of spaces of law and faith in the aftermath of mass violence. That's great. Thank you, everyone. To start with then, given that the focus of today's episode is on archives, Benjamin, would you like to tell us a little bit about what what is it we're talking about when we use the term archive in a transitional justice context? Sure. So firstly, for me, just to note, I'm a little cautious in setting out a broader definition or framing of archives in transitional justice, as this can or could potentially lead to disciplinary and intellectual boundaries being put up in terms of what counts as archival and transitional justice research and also the teaching of it. In saying that, I'm not deliberately avoiding answering your question. I just have some caution around how even when there's the best of intentions, dominant approaches to a given phenomenon can create labels and assumptions of what does and what does not count as doing that kind of research. And I guess one example that we're all familiar with is how in the wider TJ field and how legalistic approaches and understandings have become dominant. Anyway, he's now attempting to more directly answer your question, Lauren. 
For me and my research interests, I understand archives in transitional justice as socially, politically, and legally constructed sites of knowledge, disruption, control, agency, protection, restriction, and also memory, identity, and power. And because of these complexities, one understanding of archives in transitional justice I would quite strongly resist is archives are neutral. That's not to say that archives don't have a very important role in transitional justice. And I would argue they certainly do. It's just to prioritize these complexities within our discussions and work on archives. A given archive consists of at least a few, often arguably many of these complexities I just mentioned. And connected to this, there are also public and private or personal archives and which can often interact with each other. So for example, in the Rwandan context, many Rwandans had photographs of loved ones who were killed during the genocide against the Tutsi and they donated these photographs to the Rwandan Genocide Archive, and many of which are now on public display. So when we have these interactions of public and private or personal archives, the dynamics of these interactions can often entail some of the complexities I just mentioned. And also, just on a final note, there are informal sites of archives, sites which traditionally might not be thought of as an archive, for example, a wall in a city suburb with murals and graffiti depicting images and texts of violence and mass atrocity can arguably be understood as a type of archive. This informal understanding of archives reflects some questions around what an archive can be or what an archive is and in this regard, Louisa Franco, who I know both Ulrika and Julia know, has done some really interesting work on indigenous groups in Colombia and how they understand the environment and nature or Mother Earth as a form of archive. So that would be how I would summarise my understanding of archives in transitional justice. Thank you, Benjamin. That was really interesting. I'm going to look up that stuff around, um, that work around, sorry, Indigenous groups in Colombia and Mother Earth as an archive. I hadn't come across that before, so I'll have to read up on that. I guess in sort of transitional justice terms, like for me, and I guess maybe a lot of transitional justice researchers, when I think about TJ and archives, I think first of the dictatorships of Latin America. So places like Argentina, Chile, Guatemala, and the use of archival documents there by formal truth commissions. So as a TJ researcher, I understand archives as something that can be of utility in time in terms of uncovering the truth of past violence. I mean, Benjamin, you've already touched on the fact that there's a lot more complexity there. And I think a few years ago, when I met both you and, and Julia for the first time, I got a really strong sense from you both that the place of archives in transitional justice was one that really hadn't been fully engaged with in all of its complexity. So perhaps could you please set the scene for our listeners in terms of the research landscape that existed at that time when you first came to the study of archives and the implications of that for how the role of archives in transitional justice was understood? So I will give 
part of my answer in the form of a quick anecdote, if, if I may. In 2017, Julia and I organised a panel on archives and transitional justice at the European Consortium for Political Research Conference in Oslo. That was actually where I first met you, Lauren. And I think the panel was at the end of the day and on the last day of the transitional justice stream. And during the Q&A session, an audience member said, I thought the panel was going to be about libraries and library records and catalogues and that sort of more mundane stuff. However, I was very pleasantly surprised and really glad I stayed to listen. So I think the kind of these kind of comments capture some of the broader understanding of archives and their role in transitional justice up until and around that sort of time. And then just to go into that in a little more detail, uh, they hadn't been, a, from my perspective at least, there hadn't been a great connection between archival studies and research into post-conflict societies and justice. But there are a few exceptions to this, such as the work of, of uh, Eric Ketelar, and also some conceptual work from the areas of cultural studies and philosophy. Derrida's well-read Archive Fever would be one example of that. Although from a TJ perspective, archives, at least from my, from my thinking, were very much seen as a source of evidence in, in trials or as a data for research and much less so as a site of research in and of itself. And just to say something very briefly about my current and ongoing research, because this has been directly informed by current discussions about thinking about archives as a site of research in and of themselves. So I, uh, this is kind of formed around three threads, if you like. So my PhD project, which engaged with the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda archive material, and particularly material relating to the pre-trial process. So motions, indictments, pre-trial briefs, rules of evidence and procedure as examples. And this was analyzed through a uh, discourse analysis. And then as a second kind of thread to looking at this and kind of this more ongoing work, um, I'm interested in archival sounds and visual material from international criminal trials and what this material can tell us about the messiness and complexity of international criminal justice. And it's framed through a lens of rhythm analysis, specifically the work of Tim Edisor and some insights from visual jurisprudence of Alanza Gandhi. And there's a third thread, but this is very much a fledgling uh, project using the material from the ICTR archive as a case study. Uh, the project will hopefully investigate the potential value of legal archive material relating to atrocity trials in aid in the recovery of affected societies through engaging with young people and using the novel application of arts-based methods. So that's just to give you a kind of, I guess a few very brief examples from my own research about how kind of I've developed my own thinking around archives in transitional justice in the last few years. Oh, thank you, Benjamin. That um, work around archival sounds and visual materials from, from trial sounds really, really interesting. So I look forward to seeing where that goes. Julia, do you want to come in on this question? Yes, thank you, Lauren. Um, so I think Benjamin has really mentioned um, a couple of, if 
of really significant points uh, in terms of the complexity of archives, but also about the missing links or the missing knowledge that we still have. So, and I think here in particular to mention is the way archival studies basically have an independent life from traditional justice scholarship. So really what I try to do in, in my own work is to bring together, bring into conversation these two strengths of literature because archival studies has to offer the transitional justice scholarship um, a lot of new way of thinking around uh, memory and justice. And I think that's perhaps the, the two main key terms that we should think about when we talk about archives. So this is the first one. I think the second one, which is really important to mention, is that transitional justice, at least the mainstream transitional justice scholarship, has a conceptually underdeveloped understanding of archives as objective container of information, and particularly in transitional justice as uh, pure evidence. So usually what happens is that transitional justice institutions, such as truth and reconciliation commissions or trials, relate on human rights documentation in some form in order to make a legal case or as well in, in TSCs to sort of prove human rights documentation, uh, human rights violations. So um, th this is a bit sort of the, the purpose and, and what we actually collect. So, so I would say the archiving process, and here also drawing on the work of Eric Ketela that uh, Benjamin mentioned earlier, we need to really look at the archivalization process, which is quite different from archiving as such, because it starts much earlier. So what kind of information do we actually collect and for what purpose? And at the same time, we need to ask, what is left out, right? So for example, when we talk about human rights documentation and human rights violations, we need to ask what is counts actually as human rights violations. And that might be um, different in terms of um, the context, but also a universal application of human rights. So this is, I think, where we need to start asking questions really in terms of the collection of data that then feeds into um, archives. So. Another strand I think where we are missing some knowledge is on how and what specific type of documentation is used in transitional justice and what is most useful for those institutions. So we, we don't actually know what is produced and created through the reuse of human rights documentation, the refiguration of other material collected by transitional justice bodies themselves, and then the reassemblage of all this material in their archives. So TSCs, for example, um, work that way, but also um, when we look at the ICTR, the, the ICTY, um, the ECCC in Cambodia, these are ways of how they use documentation, but we actually don't know exactly um, how they do that, what kind of documentation they rely on, on what basically is produced, what comes out at the end. Um, so I think this is something that um, transitional justice uh, research should really look into that a bit more. And perhaps coming back to Benjamin's point about the complexity, I think it's really understanding um, important that we acknowledge the lacking understanding of the dynamics and the consequences of the relationship of archives in transitional justice. Because as, as we write in the special issue that uh, Ulrike um, our colleague Dagmar Hoverstedt from the Stasi Records Archive in Berlin and myself edited uh, in the International Journal of Human Rights um, this year um, say is that um, we don't know much about the relationship 
between um, archives and transitional justice and, uh, justice, and usually this is uh, seen as a positive relationship. So there's only a very recent scholarship actually that acknowledges that perhaps this relationship between archives and transitional justice is not only one of accountability, but it can also entrench silences and marginalized voices in the um, production of knowledge through archives in transitional justice. And that's another point where we need to further look into. Thank you, Julia. That's all really, really fascinating. Could you tell us then, Julia, a bit about sort of where we've got to like right now? So can you tell me about your own research into archives and what your findings tell us about the place and use of archives in TJ? Yeah, so so much of that um, we, we developed together in the special issue that I just uh, mentioned. So I, in particular, am looking at a more conceptual way of bringing together archival studies, research, memory studies and transitional justice scholarship. Um, and here arguing in particular that um, through incorporating thinking of archival studies and uh, memory studies, we can broaden out our understanding of what transition means, what justice means. And here in particular, critiquing through archival studies and memory studies, transitional justice notions of closure, healing, reconciliation, and an end point, right? So transitional justice is always like, we have a transition from A to B, and at some point there is democracy at the end, there, there is peace, there is healing. So an end point, whilst when we, the archive, um, we can see the archive as something that is in 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 becoming, right? So so this is this particular um, approach in archival studies actually to see an archive not as an um, ready-made entity, um, something that is sort of finished product, but something that is in current developing or current development precisely because it is reused and reconfigured um, by different actors and in various contexts. So. Against this backdrop, I have developed term transitional archives. So, and this this type of archive really is different from human rights archives. So, this is usually a word that um, is is used a lot, and the term was coined by Gerashi and and Caswells in in their typology of archives that they develop. So, I want to move away from this and and actually say we need to be a bit more specific when we talk about archives and transitional justice and particularly address the gap between the actual collection of human rights violations and the justice, uh, in, um, the way justice is then pursued in the aftermath of that through transitional justice. So basically a transition, um, transitional archives are those archives that are produced um, by transitional justice institutions such as TSCs and um legal courts, for example, but also through reparation um, processes or vettings, for example. That's great. Thank you. So I wanted to ask um, Ulrika a, a question now. I mean, as many of our listeners will, will be aware, transitional justice has often been critiqued for being dominated by top-down elite-led mechanisms for addressing legacies of past violence. And uh, as you'll know, for the past decade or so, there have been strong calls for transitional justice from below. So um, to draw on the work of McAvoy and McGregor there. I guess when we think about archives in a truth recovery context, I tend to think of documentation and records produced by governments, um, by political elites, by dictatorships. So Ulrika, could you perhaps say something about the way in which archives can be of value for bottom-up or grassroots initiatives? And 
Do you have any reflections on, I mean, Julia and uh, Benjamin have already touched on this, but the intersection of archives and, and power relations in transitional contexts? Yes, um, thank you, Lauren. I think that's a really interesting and important question. I think I'd like to answer it in sort of three parts. The first point being that I think the documentation that you mentioned, which is produced by governments and political elites, is sort of the most visible form of documentation, partly because there has been more research um, on this, but I think it's by far not the only documentation that is being used and that can be useful for transitional justice processes. So I think there's also quite a variety of documentation that is produced by all kinds of other stakeholders, um, from civil society, individuals living in or affected by conflict um, and human rights violations, communities and religious elders, um, businesses, survivors of violence, um, the families of disappeared persons, for example. So I think there's really um, quite a broad range that is not so much part of the debate yet. And we've, in our special issue that Julia mentioned already, we've touched on some of those um, for example, in the case of Colombia, with the personal records collection of um, the family of a disappeared person, for example. And I think this relates also to how we understand archives and some of the points that Benjamin has made earlier. Um, I think what is important is that is archiving and, and this whole discussion around archives and transitional justice is not only about the formally established and really highly structured um, archives that governments, for example, um, create and, and um, leave to, to a post-conflict um, debate, for example, but it is also those collections of people, groups, organizations um, that they hold and which include not only documents. And I think that is very important. Um, and it's not only about physical and digital documents, but also photographs, artifacts, recordings, and even oral archives, which I think is sometimes uh, more difficult to bring together with this classic idea of archives that we tend to work with. Um, and what is important there is that I think these different types of archives and actors also require a different approach to how we think about archiving and related questions of privacy, um, of records management, of ownership. So I think there, there's an important dimension in that. And so the second part of, of this question, I think, how can archives be used for um, or by bottom-up and grassroots initiatives? I think it's important that grassroots initiatives can use both government records and their own collections, of course. And... They can use these for quite a variety of processes and transitional justice goals, if you uh, will. Um, and we've seen examples of civil society actors, for example, setting up their own memorialization processes or using archival materials to capture sort of alternative or complementary narratives of the past, um, which can be quite different at times from official um, and governmental narratives and interpretations of of conflict and human rights violations, of course. And I think, importantly, documentation collected and created by civil society actors can also be used to hold perpetrators accountable um, if it is used as evidence, for example, in, in trials um, or in front of a truth commission. But I think perhaps one of the most important roles that bottom-up initiatives um, and civil society actors have is to really collect and preserve documentation. I think we've seen a lot of cases where governments are unwilling or unable 
um, to promote accountability, truth-seeking, memorialization um, at the sort of point in time that we're in, um, and where civil society has a really important role in preserving that documentation so it can be used years or decades later um, when societies and, and um, institutions are ready to deal with the past, for example. And on the intersection of archives and power, I think it is important to understand that archives can and do um, represent and reproduce existing power structures. So state archives, for example, often represent the powers that be. They are created by those in power from the perspective of power. Um, and this is reflected in how they, they are organized and how they describe their materials and how access is granted, for example. Um, and if we only rely on those archives of the powerful in transitional justice processes, I think we are quite likely to reproduce these perspectives of the powerful, of course. But I think it's equally important that archives also have always sort of some inherent possibility to turn power relations on their head. Um, I think in the special issue, we had an uh, article by myself and my colleague Romain Le Dauphin, on the easier telegram, which was originally sent uh, to report the raiding of a children's home in um, France under Nazi occupation, and which was, um, after the end of the Second World War, collected and preserved by what we would now call a civil society archive in a way. Um, and decades later, it became a piece of evidence in the trial for one of the key perpetrators, um, the commander in charge of this raid. And I think there we see very nicely how a record that documents the victimization of one group was later could serve that same group uh, to hold perpetrators accountable and to take their power over the narrative and over um, yeah also their position in society um, sort of remove it from them and I think that's a very powerful example of yeah this possibility that archives have to to turn around power relations and lastly one more point I think it's important that bottom up and non-governmental archives can also challenge dominant narratives um, and diversify the narratives we have about the past. And through that, they can render audible or visible those that we don't often hear from in transitional justice. And this is especially victims and survivors. And I think the interesting part with archives that were created by those very same people is that it allows them to speak in their own voice. Um, it's a record created out of their own perspective, which is something we don't see often enough, I think, in the transitional justice debates. Thank you, Ulrike. That's really interesting. I'm really loving hearing from all of you about just these different different ways of thinking about archives. I mean, I think, Julia, like you talked about like the transitional archive and the archives that come from transitional mechanisms themselves. And like Ulrike, you touch on all of these different ways in which archives can be preserved and used. And I think it's really broadening out and um, adding depth to the way that, that I, I think about archives or that I, I would tend to think about archives. The final question I have for you, um, Julia, you, you already mentioned that yourself and Ulrike, along with uh, Dagmar Hofstadt, have edited a special issue of the International Journal of Human Rights on this, this topic of archives. From that process, I mean, you've touched on, on, a, on, a, few, on a bit of this already, but have you any sort of further reflections on, on the state of the field and where do you see research on archives going from here on in? Um, I think 
Currently, there is still a very strong focus on state archives and especially the archives of security branches of government. Um, and there are some very well-known examples like the, the Stasi Records Archive, for example, or the Guatemala National Historical Police Archive. Um, and I think there is a lot of work to do in understanding other actors that have ar create archives and how these can be used. I myself am doing some research at the moment on corporate archives and their potential use in transitional justice. But beyond that, I think we're also seeing an increasing awareness of this diversity of archives and records that I mentioned earlier um, from civil society, indigenous community and many, many other forms of archives that can play a an important role in, in processes of addressing the past and transitional justice. And I think there's sort of two um, major gaps, perhaps. The one is the fact that archives and records are not only uh, useful as evidence. Um, and I think there has been a lot of focus on this evidentiary value, but they're really also almost like conversation starters for dialogue processes or artifacts for memori memorialization processes. So there's a much more diverse range of uses that um, I think future research will, will shift towards. Um, and I think really important is also to understand better the interaction almost between archives and archiving and transitional justice. I think we don't really understand the positive but also the potential negative impacts that the use of archives can have on transitional justice processes. I've highlighted some of that with the use of sort of the perspective of the powerful earlier. But also we don't understand yet what this focus on transitional justice uses does to archives, right? If I think because there is a very strong focus on using records for trials, I think we also have to ask what does it mean? How does it change the record keeping um practices and the archiving practices, right, if, if we're very strongly focused only on one particular use. So I think those are questions that are sort of are vastly underexplored, but which we're seeing an increasing interest in. Thanks, Ulrike. Uh, Julia, did you want to come in on this one? Yeah, perhaps just, just to add like two smaller points. And I think um, what we wanted to achieve really with this special issue to, as Ulrike said, to rethink the relationship between archives and transitional justice and really encourage scholarship um, and more research into this particular relationship. So I think, first of all, it's important, as we set out in the special issue, is seeing it's important to see archives as actors themselves in transitional justice as, as a site of knowledge production, right? So the archive is, is actually site of knowledge production rather than just a site of knowledge extraction. Um, so that's the first point. And I think the second point really is uh, coming back to, to Ulrike's um, point on the, the powerful, the archive of the powerful, that we do really need to have much more knowledge on the ways in which voices are marginalized and silences are entrenched to, to really um, map out the, the negative effects that archives have on transitional justice in order to actually uh, be able to, to, to better inform those uh, archiving processes and the use of archives and transitional justice so that there might be a positive outcome. And uh, Ulrike Dagmar and myself, like, we are really trying to advance this, this kind of view uh, in the current uh, debate on archives and transitional justice. Could I just add Thank a you. couple of just very final quick notes on the, where the research is, is going, if that's okay, Lauren? Yes, Benjamin, that would be great. So just on the first note, I think one area where 
archives in transitional justice could have a very useful role is in the USA context. And with recent calls for a range of TJ mechanisms to address historical, racial, and social injustices. So just thinking of one example in the US context, the work of Broder and Herrera, where they use documentary theater as a, as a way for students to interactively learn through and engage with archive material about the history of the civil rights movements in Virginia. So with all these kind of debates you hear in the US about kind of truth commissions and et cetera, I think archives have a really important role to play in, in those kind of contemporary debates. And so on a final note, just to draw attention to the multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary work on archives in TJ currently going on, which I think is really exciting for the future of this area of research and related debates. And just to give a couple of examples of that, be the work of Ariana Phillips-Hutton, who is based in musicology and looks at how arts, music and sound can disrupt dominant narratives around the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Also the work of Henry Redwood based in IR, who looks around the power dynamics of creating an archive for international criminal trials, and also some ideas around witnesses and knowledge production. And also the work of Andy Aiden uh, Atchison based in criminology, who is doing some really interesting work at the moment about the relation of legal archives and atrocity and what these can tell us about criminal trials, societal responsibility, and also the potential of translating legal texts into processes of social reckoning. And then just to mention uh, Jelena Sobotix, if I mispronounce that, I'm very sorry, her recent article on the ethics of conducting archival research related to political violence, which I think is a must read for anyone conducting archival research and also the teaching of it. Great, thank you, uh, Benjamin, and thank you for um, highlighting all of those scholars whose work um, our listeners might be interested in. I guess I have, I have one final question. It comes back to, Benjamin, you mentioned in your first response about the use of photographs um, in Rwanda and these photographs being given by given in by survivors and as you might be aware I did some work in, in Cambodia with uh, Rachel Clayton and Cheryl Lother looking at tools playing and um, as a site of so-called dark tourism and obviously like photographs are so central to that site but we don't have agency in, in that way obviously these 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 photographs were were gathered and 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 displayed there um, what is where does agency come into like archives of that nature? What is the, the sort of the added value in actually having archives that come from those who have been directly affected um, by violence rather than these sort of governmental records that are put on display without perhaps the consent of those involved? Do you have any thoughts on that, Benjamin? Sure. So thank you for the question. So I guess two thoughts. One would be so you're talking about the sort of the, the private archive, if you like, the, the photographs that yeah. belong. So, yeah, the, the one word that comes to mind would be the work of, again, if I mispronounce the name, Fator, uh, Chiplank, who looks at photography in Rwanda and has a really good uh, documentary called The Faces We Lost, which I would also highly recommend. But in, in that, he talks about, um, and in his research work, talks about how photographs are a way that Rwandans can feel connected to the, the family members, the brothers, the sisters, the parents that were killed during the genocide. And so it's this kind of bridging 
kind of this space between the loss, but also feeling connected. So I think in that sense, the, the these private personal photographs can have a, a, a kind of role in, in agency in, in, in that regard. I'd also say, I guess it's slightly outside of the private, but in terms of kind of dialogue, I think photographs can be a really useful way to, as a kind of, to facilitate a dialogue. This is something I, I started to look at in my own research, the photographs within the ICTR archive and how this can be a way to stimulate conversations between those who survived the genocide against Tutsi and those who were born either during or after and have no personal memories of the genocide. I think photography is also, sorry, photographs embrace complexities and allows understanding of other perspectives. So I think in that sense, it can create a, a form of agency as well, if that makes some sense. Yeah, it does actually. As you might have seen, we're um, having an exhibition from the Conflict Textiles Archive yeah, at, at Queen's. Oh yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, but one of the pieces I was reading around Conflict Textiles is about how they have value in terms of um, communicating like difficult knowledge because it isn't a textual form. You can There's more things you can do with textiles. Okay, so that brings us uh, to the to to the end of the podcast. So thank you all so much for your time. It's been really valuable. I look forward to listening back um, because there's loads of really rich content in there. Um, so um, thank you to all of our speakers uh, for joining us today. And that was a really fascinating conversation. So thank you, everyone. Thank you.